Uh, just a quick note about your notes. You can see that they're long. I think we've had several long note packets lately. I'll try to um, keep us cued as we're going from page to page. Uh, it's hard to predict how much space you need sometimes after a particular point, and so there's always the back, since we're just putting on one side. If you run out of space, there's your overflow. Um, but hopefully that's just helpful to have more things down on writing so you're not scribbling furiously and missing the next thing. So those are your notes. Okay, let me just pray again, and um, then we'll start by looking at the back of our notebooks. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be here. Thank you for the blood of Christ that washes away our sin, <clears throat> that makes us new, that makes us your own, that makes us your children, that makes us sisters with one another. Lord, that's an amazing, amazing privilege and powerful work you have done just because of your good pleasure and your goodwill. Thank you for your mercies to us. Thank you for your word and that it is powerful and it is effective. We pray that you would use your word this morning to do your work in each one of our hearts. Lord, I pray. Thank you so much for these dear moms. Lord, I pray that Right now, you would just help each one's heart to be at peace. Lord, not worried about their little ones down the hall. Not worried about the moles on cereal on the counter at home or, Lord, whatever whatever might want to take our thoughts away. I just pray you'd help all of our minds to settle and receive what you have for us this morning. Thank you for your spirit that lives inside your children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so go ahead and turn your notebook over. We are going to review our Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines. So the Wellspring Purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And so this morning, as we review our Wellspring Disciplines, we're going to talk about prayer and the role of prayer in each of these disciplines. Um, and this isn't to take anything away from our need for God's Word. We've heard all year long about how desperately our hearts and God's Word need to be in full contact every day. But this morning, I want to consider how essential prayer is as well. Now, John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith. The chief exercise of faith. And what is faith but believing God and trusting God to be all that he has said, that he's revealed himself to be, to do all that he has said he will do, and to do for us what we must have and that we are utterly unable to do for ourselves. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Believers have been saved into a loving relationship with God as our Father. And so how do we fellowship with our Father? How do we express to Him our ongoing trust and dependence on Him? We do that through prayer. Now Jesus has always enjoyed perfect communion with the Father. During His earthly ministry, He frequently slipped away to pray. And so prayer is learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed. It's learning to enjoy what Jesus 
has always enjoyed. And I have found that a really helpful way to think about prayer that I'm learning. I have to learn to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed because there are plenty of times when my heart and my mind are at a place where I'm not ready to enjoy prayer and I have to drag my feet, you know, to get started with prayer. But I am thankful that God has saved us into a relationship with himself through his son and that he's gracious and he's merciful and he is helping us learn to enjoy more and more of what Jesus has always enjoyed, fellowship with our Heavenly Father through prayer. And so let's look at our Wellspring Disciplines and consider the role of prayer in each one of these. Now, Discipline 1 is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. So what does prayer look like in Discipline 1? Well, as we open God's Word, we pray We cry out to God for all that we need for this to be a time of worship and drawing near to him. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. We might pray for a soft heart, for understanding, for a heart of reverence. We might need to pray for protection from interruptions and for grace to trust him if those interruptions do come. And as we read, we can pray in response to what we're reading with worship, thanksgiving, repentance. We can commit ourselves to obedience even as we plead with God for his help. And as we finish our time with our Bible open, we must pray for God's grace to help us have an attitude of worship and to shepherd our hearts throughout the day. Discipline two, then, is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home. Now, how can we be concerned for those in our home if we are not praying for them? We may be the only person praying for those in our household or family. And we know the people in our household and family better than many other people do, and we know how badly they need the Lord. Discipline 2 continues, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. How can we minister to them if we're not praying about our relationship with them? praying for our own hearts to be fixed on God and his word so that we are growing in our ability to shepherd, to encourage, and to show how satisfying it is to walk with Jesus. We need to be praying for God's grace to love them, to listen to them, to forgive them, to respect them. So prayer is essential for both discipline one and discipline two. Discipline three, then, is ministry, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now that is a big task, isn't it? It's a high calling. But ladies, there is no need to shrink back from that. Let's draw near to God in humble dependence 
and cry out to him that though we are so inadequate in so many ways, that we can be confident in his enabling power through his grace, through his spirit, through his word, to use us to be the aroma of Christ wherever he places us. Let's pray for him to do his work in those around us as we seek to obediently be his instruments in their, in their lives. And let us thank him for his design for us to care for others out of the overflow of our relationship with him. And so those are the disciplines. And now we get to spend the rest of our time talking more about Discipline 3 in particular. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now, all of our lives are filled with relationships, but we live in a fallen world, and our relationships bear the effects of that fall. We inevitably find ourselves in relationships with people who might be unruly, faint-hearted, or weak. And one key verse for understanding God's design for us in these relationships in the body of Christ is Ephesians 4.16, where we see that God's design is that the body causes the growth of the body. And God hasn't left us alone in this. He's given us principles that can help us help one another. And that's what we'll see today in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And the heart behind this lesson is that we would be better equipped by God's word to care for one another as a church family. So let's start with a brief overview. In your homework, when you wrote out the verse, you may have noticed that this is an instruction passage. There are four instructions in this verse alone. But these instructions don't sit off by themselves. They sit in a context, and they make the most sense when we remember what that context is. So first of all, let's talk about who the authors are. You talked about this last week with Diana, I believe, and it's also on page one of your notes. The Apostle Paul is the author of this letter, along with Sylvanus and Timothy. (coughs) Sylvanus is also known as Silas in Scripture. He was with Paul when this church was birthed, and Timothy had been sent to Thessalonica by Paul after Paul and Silas had left. Um, Timothy then brought a report back to Paul of how the Thessalonians were doing. And so these three men are reunited in Corinth, and they're writing to the believers in Thessalonica in response to the report that Timothy had brought. And this is just a few months after this church began. This is still a very young church. Um, And as far as the content of the letter goes, you have summarized there in your notes um, that in chapter 1, we see Paul's joy over the fruit of their salvation. In chapter 2, Paul recognizes their suffering. In chapter 3, he expresses relief over Timothy's report. And in chapters 4 and 5, we see Paul giving instructions to them. And these instructions address godly living as well as relationships within the body. And so a summary of this church is that it's a very young church with genuine gospel fruit. They are living in much tribulation. They are persevering and doing well. But there is still much they need to know about the Christian life. So it's a very young church. They're taking their first steps in the Christian life together. 
because all of this was a very new way of living for the Thessalonian believers. And so let's keep that in mind as we turn to page two of our notes and study our verse. So 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So the verse begins, we urge you, brethren. So Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy are urging the recipients of this letter. They're giving them a strong exhortation to obey the commands that are coming in this verse. And they write, we urge you, brethren. The word brethren is used 18 times in this letter. And when used in this way, it describes uh, fellow believers who are united to one another by a bond of affection. By using this word, Paul is reminding them that they have a new identity rooted in their relationship to the same Heavenly Father. So think for a moment about the significance of this. God moved Paul to call these fellow believers, not believers, not saints. He didn't call them the redeemed, although all of those titles would be appropriate. But God moved Paul to address them as brothers. God and Paul are concerned not only to remind them of who they are in Christ, but that he's referring to them in such a way that they can't miss their relationship with one another, their relationship because of the gospel. And so Paul is addressing them as family. In addition, we also need to notice that this urging is not limited to church leaders. It's for the brethren. Now, our church leaders are also commanded to do these things, and they lead us and serve as an example for us. But that does not mean that the body of believers is exempt. We are not exempt. These commands are for the brethren in Thessalonica, and they are also for us. So what is it that Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy are urging the brethren to do? Well, the first command is to admonish the unruly. Now, the word admonish is also translated to warn. Literally, it means to put in mind. It's a training that's done with words. It's most often a warning based on instruction. Now, this is not a soft, half-hearted plea. This is a stern warning, a sharp reproof designed to rescue the one who has strayed outside of God's design for their life. Now, the one admonishing is coming with a message that says, you need this. As a believer, you don't have the freedom to keep on living this way. And the admonishment aims to do two things. To show them their sin and to point them to a clear path of repentance. Turning away from their sin and obeying Jesus. So that they can be restored to godly character and usefulness in the body. And Paul's command is that they are to admonish the unruly. Unruly means to deviate from the prescribed order or rule. It can describe a soldier who is out of rank. In a Christian context, the unruly one has deviated from God's prescribed order. It's a person who does not stay within God's design for them in at least some area of life. And there's a clarification that I think is helpful to make here. 
This is not describing someone who has not been instructed or who doesn't understand or who needs additional explanation and help. We'll see Paul in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that he is often reminding them. You might have noticed when you read the book that he's confident there's a lot of things that they know, but he's telling them again. Um, and he often instructs them on how to better obey what he's already taught them. But he reserves his warnings and his admonishments for those who know what they're supposed to do and are unwilling to obey. So the unruly know God's standard, but they are rejecting his authority over them by disobeying. They're choosing not to live as God instructs. It reveals a rebelliousness. So let's look at some examples of unruliness. Now, if you use the ESV translation of the Bible, you may have noticed that unruly is translated idle. And that's because idleness is the way in which some of the Thessalonians were being unruly. And we can see that in uh, these letters by looking at what Paul says about work in both this letter and in the next letter he wrote them a few months later. So go ahead and look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. We find Paul urging them like this. Um, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So in this first letter, we learn that he already had commanded them to work when he was with them. And he is again urging them to work as he writes this letter. And then if you turn a couple pages over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 10, he writes, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined, that would be an unruly or idle life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So Paul had commanded them to work when he was with them, and he urged them again in his first letter to work, but there are still some who are unruly. They are deviating from God's prescribed order for them to work, and instead they're being idle. They're not working at all. They're acting like busybodies. So in 2 Thessalonians, the kind of unruliness he's addressing is idleness. But now turning back to 1 Thessalonians, we find that Paul had concern for other kinds of unruliness as well. So this is our second example of unruliness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul gives them instruction regarding their sanctification, specifically in the area of sexual purity. And in verse 6, he says, we told you this before and we solemnly warned you. Remember, that's what admonish means, to warn. He had warned them before about the consequences of sexual immorality. And then in verse 8, he writes, so he who rejects this, that's the one who is deviating from the prescribed order, the unruly one, that one is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So when Paul talks about the unruly, He's not describing just one kind of unruliness, such as idleness or sexual immorality. Rather, he's saying that any believer who won't line himself or herself up under the teaching of God's word in any area of life 
needs to be warned. They need to be admonished. So go ahead and let's turn over to page three in the notes. What had Paul already taught them that would have helped them know how to admonish the unruly brother or sister? If I get off and give you the wrong page number, somebody let me know. Um, You know, are they just supposed to say, hey, knock it off? Cut it out. Stop that. Well, thankfully, Paul didn't leave them to figure this out for themselves. He gave them an example right here in this letter that would guide them, and it will be helpful for us as well. And so let's look again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to see three principles for admonishment from Paul's example. Now, we saw that Paul was giving a warning by the time he got down to verse 6, but if we back up and begin reading in verse 1, there is a lot in what leads up to this warning to help us understand how to admonish the unruly brother or sister in a biblical way. So the first principle we can see is in Paul's example is this. Go with the love and care of a brother or sister seeking to restore. And we see this where Paul begins by saying, finally then, brethren. Just like in chapter 5, verse 14, he's using family language. He's highlighting not just what Christ has done for each believer individually, but also how he has transformed our relationships with one another. We are now family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's important to remember, especially when we need to admonish the unruly. Now, we were reading about the unruly brother in 2 Thessalonians 3 just a moment ago. If you'll flip back there one more time to chapter 3, verse 15, you will see Paul's, uh, how he concludes his instructions regarding the unruly brother. He writes, Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That means we're coming to someone with love, with a desire to help them see their sin and repent. We need to remember that sin is the enemy, not our brother, not our sister. And a brother or sister is someone whom we admonish with the hope of repentance and restoration. Now, of course, we need to be wise and biblical in how we go about this. For example, if it's a man who needs to be admonished, it's appropriate to involve our husband or an elder or small group leader to approach that man. But our first principle, then, is to remember that our brother or sister that they are our brother or sister in Christ, and to go with love. The next principle we learn from 1 Thessalonians 4 is that we need to rely on the power and authority of God's word. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to drop down to verses 7 and 8, and I want you to listen for how often Paul points to God and God's authority in their lives. So finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus... That, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. So he's saying these are God-pleasing instructions. Just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one with the authority here. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. Jumping down to verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. Over and over again, Paul is pointing back to God, to God's instructions, 
God's authority, God's will, and God's call. And in so doing, he's grounding his warning in God's word, because that's God's standard for how his people are to live. The authority is in God's word. God is the one who has a right to rule whom he has made and whom he has saved. He is the one believers must seek to please, not to gain his favor, but rather because he has already freely and abundantly granted his favor to us in Jesus Christ. And God is the one being rejected when the unruly reject his commands and deviate from his prescribed order. And that is why we need to come with God's word when we need to admonish a sister or brother and call them to repentance. Finally, our third principle for admonishment is to make clear the connection between obedience and the believer's identity in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, who do not know God. So he's saying that as people who do know God, they are to live as God commands. You have a chart with this in your notes. His will for them is their sanctification, their holiness of life, their sexual purity, possessing their own bodies in holiness and honor. And that stands in stark contrast with those who don't know God. Those who don't know God live in sexual morality and lustful passions and impurity. Down in verse 8, Paul adds, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So God's will for those who know him is holiness, and he has given his Holy Spirit to us. So as we admonish, we want to help the unruly brother or sister to see that in saving them, they have come to know God. And God changed them. They're not what they used to be. His own spirit of holiness lives in them so that they can be holy and their lives need to be holy. So Paul gives us a wonderful example for how to admonish the unruly. Go with the love and care of a brother or sister seeking to restore, rely on the power and authority of God's word, and make clear the connection between obedience and the believer's identity in Christ. Now, all that said, practically speaking, this is hard. This is not easy to do. It might be something that we tend to avoid. You know, for some of us, this is just not our tendency. But we need to see it as the most loving thing to do. You know, God would not have commanded it if it weren't the most loving way to care for the unruly. And so we must see it that way as well. Even though it's difficult, we need to be doing this for our sisters in Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, if I'm not, why not? What's keeping me from this? We need to think of this as the norm, not the exception. Because an area where we are unruly may be an area of blindness that we don't see until someone admonishes us and helps us to see that disobedience. It's also helpful to remember all that Paul has done in this letter to make this warning as easy to receive as possible. 
Think of all the encouragement that he gives, the evidence of God's grace that he has identified in them, the love that he has for them, his longing to be with them. We need to express those things as well. But even when done in love, it can still be hard to receive admonishment. It might not be taken well. We may need to give them time and space for a second response. They may need time to prayerfully examine their hearts in light of God's word. And that needs to be a time that we pray for them and continue to express love for them. You know, we need to not make the problem worse by being offended by their response, right? That's just a sinful response on our part. Um, We need to remember that their biggest struggle is not with you or me. It's with the Lord. But we need to be patient and continue to offer them gospel hope for change. Let's go ahead then and turn to page four in our notes. Um, And we'll take a look at the next command, which is to encourage the faint-hearted. So let's begin with understanding what's meant by faint-hearted. This word can be translated discouraged, timid, disheartened, despondent. It literally means little-spirited or small-souled. There's something constricting the soul, pressing on the soul, that's causing it to be small. This person is a broken or afflicted spirit. It's a person who's easily discouraged or overwhelmed. They may be fearful and feel themselves to be inadequate. They're in danger of giving up. Now, why might some of the Thessalonian believers have been faint-hearted? Well, it could be because they've been suffering for the sake of the gospel, or because Paul and the others had had to leave them um, when they were still very young in the faith, in the midst of ongoing tribulations. Some may have been faint-hearted because of their grief over their beloved brethren who had died. And today, we have faint-hearted people in our body as well. For us, it's not as common right now for us to suffer ongoing persecution at the hands of our government or families. It can happen, and it will likely increase. But right now, that's not likely the biggest source of faint-heartedness. But it could be one who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation remains unchanged. A relationship, job, finances, health. It may be that the difficult circumstances have lasted so long that they're having difficulty finding hope and joy in the life that God has prepared for them. They may entertain doubts. They may entertain doubts over God's concern for them and begin to withdraw. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone going through some kind of a trial will be faint-hearted, but some will be particularly hard-pressed by their circumstances. But regardless of the reason, if a person is feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, fearful, inadequate, if they're in danger of giving up, that person is faint-hearted and they need to be encouraged. Now the word encourage here means to speak alongside and in so doing to offer comfort and consolation. It's to offer soothing, comforting words from close proximity It's the word used to describe the consolation that was given to Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus died in John 11. Now, Paul used the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2 to describe what he did for the Thessalonians when he was with them. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, and see the attitude 
and the aim of Paul's encouragement. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging, that's that same word, and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice in verse 11 that Paul said they were encouraging each one of you. His encouragement was personal, suited to each individual. And he was encouraging each one of them as a father would his own children. This encouragement flows from a heart full of love and concern. It's tender and devoted, like a father is to his own children. We also see that Paul was encouraging them with the aim of helping them to mature in Christ so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls them. So Paul's example gives us some good checkup questions to consider as we seek to encourage the faint-hearted. You have these in your notes, but number one, do I understand the needs of this particular brother or sister in Christ? Am I being tender and compassionate? Will my encouragement help them to mature in Christ? And so like Paul, we want to be sure that we are encouraging the faint-hearted in a way that is actually encouraging and comforting and that stimulates our sister or brother in Christ to press on in love and obedience toward the Lord. So that's Paul's heart attitude and his aim. But now let's turn to page five of our notes and look at some of the content of his encouragement. As you well know, God's word is full of encouragement and hope, and this letter is no exception. So let's walk through some of this letter and notice the encouragement that Paul gives, the truth that he shares, and the love that he expresses that would have encouraged the Thessalonian believers, and particularly those who were faint-hearted. Now you have a chart in your notes listing some ways he encouraged them in 1 Thessalonians. And this should be familiar from last week, so we'll walk through it quickly, but it's helpful for us to look at it again from the perspective of how these words would have encouraged them, how they express both truth and love, so that we will have a better understanding of how to encourage others, especially those who are faint-hearted. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, he tells them that he thanks God for them and that he prays for them. He reminds them of the gospel fruit in their lives. He reminds them that they're beloved by God, that God chose them, and that they are his brothers. Verse 5, he reminds them of how the gospel came to them. He reminds them that they received the gospel in much tribulation, but that they also had joy in the Holy Spirit when they came to Christ. He reminds them of the example they've been and how far the gospel has spread because of them. He reminds them of their conversion, that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And he also reminds them that their living and true God raised their Savior Jesus from the dead. He reminds them that Jesus rescues them from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, he reminds them of his own suffering and hardship and labor, maybe as a way of saying the gospel is worth Whatever it costs you, the gospel will sustain you through any difficulty. He assures them of the trustworthiness of the gospel message. He reminds them of his own love for them, his tenderness and affection and devotion. 
the joy he has because of them. He reminds them that God has called them into his own kingdom. This world is not their home. And he points them to the ultimate source of encouragement, God's word. He reminds them that God's word performs its work in those who believe. And as we continue through this letter, Paul keeps pouring out into these Thessalonian believers both truth and love. Truth about God and the gospel, truth about themselves as believers, truth about the past and the present and the future. And it was full of love and concern. There was acknowledgement of their trials, and there were reminders of what they had to look forward to beyond their trials. That was a wonderful example to help us understand the content of biblical encouragement. And so we've looked at the hard attitude of the encourager, the aim of the encouragement, and the examples, some examples of encouragement. And that is a lot to bring together in real life, isn't it? It's not a simple formula or recipe. You know, there's a lot that needs to be considered. Encouragement needs to be expressed with understanding. We don't want to err on the side of just handing out Bible verses or describing the character of God without acknowledging the genuine difficulty that they are in and the pain that they may be experiencing. We can't assume we necessarily know what they're going through. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to grieve with them. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It can be helpful at times to ask people what would be encouraging to them in the moment. Would you like me to share with you from God's word or remind you of the gospel? Would you like me to pray with you, for you? Sometimes we need to ask them to share with us what truths they have found helpful as they've endured this trial or a trial in the past. And sometimes we need to wait and be quiet and pray. We always need to pray. Maybe you remember some of Job's friends. They were at their best when they were sitting with Job and not saying anything. At the same time, we don't want to let the trials keep us from giving them the encouragement that God has for them in his word. Now, personally, I found that that means encouragement needs to be given with humility, gentleness. Sometimes we need to ask, could you help me understand how I could encourage you better in this situation? How could I care for you in a more meaningful way? I've had friends tell me that it's helpful to preface biblical encouragement by saying, I know you already know this, but I hope it helps you to be reminded that God is faithful. God is good. It's interesting that in chapter 3 of this letter, Paul shares how comforted he was when he heard of their faith and their love, that they were standing firm in the Lord. And so in the same way, there are times when it will be helpful to encourage and comfort others by sharing the way that their faith is encouraging us, as well as sharing the things that God is doing in our own lives with them. And a lot of times, we find that what we really want to do when someone is faint-hearted is we want to make the trial go away, don't we? We just want to fix things. But here's what God has given us to do. We get to encourage, to comfort, to be thoughtful of how to do that in a way that's most suitable to this individual and to the need, and to do it with family-like concern, with the goal of helping them to mature in Christ, and with robust confidence and hope 
in what is true about God and about our brother and sister in Christ because of the gospel. Perhaps, through our encouragement, they will grow in their ability to think more biblically about their circumstances so that they will grow to be less faint-hearted. But we also need to realize that they may continue to be faint-hearted, at least for a time. That doesn't mean that we have failed or that we should quit. It just means that we need to be a faithful, encouraging friend. So those are some guideposts and examples from Paul that will help us grow in wisdom and effectiveness in caring for the faint-hearted. Well, the third command is to help the weak. We're at the top of page six in our notes. The word help means to hold oneself alongside of another. And by implication, then, it means to care for, to hold fast, to support. It's like a stake tied to a weak tree sapling that supports that sapling so that it can grow strong. And the word weak means just what we might guess. It's lacking strength in some way. And its usage in the New Testament is very broad. It can refer to physical, spiritual, or moral weakness. And as with all of these commands, we need to remember that Paul communicated to be understood by the Thessalonian believers. um, And it would have been clear to them what Paul meant by weak, which specific aspect of weak he was referring to. And they would have understood what it meant to help based on the time that they'd already spent with Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy and based on the other things that they had read in this letter. And so let's think through once again what we've seen in this letter. How do we see Paul helping them? What kind of help does he supply? And what weaknesses have been exposed among the Thessalonian believers? So we need to answer these questions in order to understand what Paul actually meant by helping the weak. Well, first we see Paul caring for them gently and tenderly like a nursing mother. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He wrote, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Remember that help includes the idea of caring for another. So a baby is weak. He can't feed himself. But the mother helps her baby by making making sure he gets exactly what he needs. And that's a picture of the kind of help that Paul gave to these baby Christians when he was with them. And second, then, we see that Paul helped them by sending Timothy. Paul had had to leave Thessalonica rather unexpectedly, and he was really concerned about how these baby believers were doing. And so in chapter 3, verse 2, he writes, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Paul was concerned that they were young, they were weak in their faith, because they, were, uh, because they were so young in the faith, and that they were being persecuted. And so he wanted to strengthen them. And that's why he sent Timothy, to help them, to be like that stake on the tree sapling that holds it straight and true until it's strong enough to stand straight on its own. That's what Timothy did for them. And then third, in addition to tenderly caring for them himself and sending Timothy, Paul helps them by instructing them. And we see his heart behind his instructions in chapter 3, verse 10. He writes, Night and day we kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking 
in your faith. Again, Paul knows that they're young in the faith, and so there are ways in which their faith is lacking. It's weak. And so he helps them by instructing them in many different ways throughout this letter. Now, so here in 1 Thessalonians, not necessarily in other places where Paul uses this word weak, but here in this letter, when Paul says weak, he has in mind those who are weak in the faith because they are new believers. There are just a lot of things that they didn't know yet. And the help they needed was for caring brothers in the Lord to come near and give them gospel-based instruction for how to live the Christian life in growing measure. The help Paul gave uh, focused specifically on strengthening believers in the faith so that they would live out the faith and be established in the faith. And the help that he gave falls into two categories. Um, Sometimes the weak needed to be reminded of what they already knew and even commended for how they were being obedient, but then challenged to do it more and more and apply it in broader ways. There are several examples of this in this letter. That's how he began the section on sanctification that we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. He's reminding them, commending them, and then he's helping them understand how they need to grow in holiness. He does the same thing beginning in chapter 4, verse 9, regarding their love for one another. He says they've been taught by God to love one another and that they're loving the brethren in Macedonia, but then he urges them to excel still more and express their love through a lifestyle of diligence and work. He's helping them to see that this love they've learned from God needs to inform their approach to their work and responsibilities. And then second, we see that Paul helps them by informing them. There's truth that they don't know yet, and they need to be instructed in the truth and in how to use that truth. He does this in chapter 4, verse 13, where he writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Then in 14 through 17, he goes on to instruct them. And then in verse 18, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in this passage, Paul helps them by instructing them in something they don't know. And he does it so that they'll know how to grieve as believers and so they'll be equipped to comfort one another. So how about us? Let's go ahead and turn to page seven in our notes. What does it look like for us to help the weak? Now remember with me again what this word help means. To hold yourself alongside someone, to care for them. And we saw Paul's example of help included personal care and instruction. And here is a key point. You have some blanks to fill in on page 7 there. Paul's instructions help them to connect truth with how they needed to think, live, and respond in light of that truth. Paul's instruction instruction helped them connect truth with how they needed to think, live, and respond in light of that truth. So how might we do that? Well, I have an observation. This is just one way to think about helping the weak. But for many women, we grow up And if we happen to be good at school or music or sports or fashion, maybe a particular career, we might find that we get a lot of affirmation for that. We can feel pretty confident and capable as if those areas where we get affirmed and praised are our greatest strength or value. 
we might be inclined to think that that's where we can make the biggest difference in the world. But as we grow in the Lord, we grow in our understanding that as believing women, our true identity and value are rooted in something much bigger and better than our own skills and abilities. We are first and most children of God whose sins have been paid for by Jesus' death on the cross in our place. And as believing women, we learn that God has a design for us to live out our identity in Christ, not only in school or in the workplace, but as an even higher priority to live out his work for us in our homes and our church. We start to see that daily tasks, decisions, opportunities are all designed to put Christ on display as we manage our homes and care for our relationships, as we seek to be faithful stewards of our time, our money, our homes. But there can be a difficulty because even as we come to see these priorities and opportunities that God has given us as women, we may also find that we aren't particularly good at some of those things or that we aren't necessarily praised for those things. You know, nobody gets a raise for being faithful to wash the dishes in her own home, does she? (laughs) We might even be tempted to think, I'm just not cut out for this. And to think that it would be more valuable for us to minimize God's priorities for us in order to spend our time and energy on the things that we think that we're good at. But what I think is going on when this happens is not that we're not cut out for Um, displaying the gospel in our homes or our church or our neighborhoods, but rather we might just have a weakness. There are things we don't know, things we haven't learned or things we don't yet understand how to apply in our various roles that the Lord gives us with each other and in our church and in our home. And so helping the weak can go both ways. Sometimes we see someone who's weak and we can take the initiative to help. And sometimes we might see our own weakness and we need to seek out help, the right kind of help, help that comes from someone coming alongside of us who will help us grow where we are weak and be strengthened by looking to God's word and helping us better understand the implications of the gospel for every part of life, even in very practical ways. Finally, that brings us to be patient with all. This word for patient means long-suffering, to bear with. It's that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate. It's the opposite of being quick-tempered. Paul Lamey says biblical patience is a command to persevere alongside those who are enduring trying circumstances. Now, this command is really a good heart check command. Notice he's telling us what we need to be, not just what we need to do. Being patient has to do with the kind of people we are at a heart level as we seek to care for others in the body. Patience in a believer's life comes from the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us that it's the fruit of the Spirit. There's no way we can be patient with a brother or sister in Christ unless we ourselves are walking in the Spirit, shepherding our own hearts with the truth of God's Word. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, patience is the first description of love. Love is patient. 
And so this exhortation to be patient with everyone demands that we shepherd our own hearts in such a way that we are ready to love our brothers and sisters in Christ from the heart. But this command is not only a good heart check, it's also a reality check because this can be hard. You know, it can be hard to care for people. People aren't always receptive. They're not always responsive. They don't necessarily change in ways that we can see, or they may change very slowly. Caring for others often exposes our own sin and weaknesses. It can be very humbling. Another challenge is that people don't fit into nice, tidy categories. You know, we uh, need to understand that though we talk, we've talked about each of these as if they were a separate group. In reality, they are just descriptions of ways that any believer can be at any particular time, and they overlap. And it takes discernment to know what kind of care a sister or brother needs in the moment. For example, one who is faint-hearted might also have a weakness in how she thinks about trials and circumstances. And if she is brought to the word of God, and she is encouraged, and she is helped to rely on God's word, to base her thinking and her confidence and her hope in the truth of God and his word, to make God her focus rather than her circumstances, she can be strengthened and better equipped to endure her trials without becoming faint-hearted. Or one who is unruly may also have a weakness in that they haven't fully understood the seriousness of their sin. And as they are admonished and helped to better understand the word and its implications, they may turn from their unruliness. One more example, one who at first seems weak may actually turn out to be unruly. You may find out that they do understand God's word, but they are rejecting its teaching and refusing to obey in some area and that they do need to be admonished. Even in the course of one conversation, we may hear strains of each of these, and that means we need to listen, ask good questions, pray for discernment, be patient, and speak the truth with love. We saw in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers how patient he was. Remember how he addressed the issue of idleness versus hard work? He was an example for them. He instructed them. And then he reminded them over and over again, both in this first letter and in his next letter. Um, And even when he commanded them to admonish the idle brother, he, he reminded them to do it as a brother. That is patient shepherding. So to conclude, let's turn to page 8 and ask, how was Paul able to be so faithful in his care for this church and for all the churches? So to answer that question, let's look at this letter one more time to learn from Paul's example and to be strengthened in our own care for one another. Well, first, Paul sought to please God, not man. Paul was not seeking to please man in the sense that he was trying to get them to approve of him. Rather, he knew he'd been entrusted with the gospel and that God was his master. God was the audience he needed to be most concerned with. Paul could care for people in the way that they needed to be cared for because he wasn't afraid of their response. He was doing it for God's glory and for their good, to help them walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Second, the overflow of Paul's devotion to God was love for the people of God. 
we see throughout this letter how thankful Paul is for these believers, how dear they were to him, how he has joy because of them, how deeply he loves them. And so Paul could persevere in his patient care for God's people because his service to God overflowed in love for the people of God. And then third, Paul was confident in the word of God. He trusted God to work in his people through his word. And Paul honored God and loved people by ministering with God's word. He knew that God's word is God's tool for doing God's work in God's people. And those three principles from Paul's life can help us to patiently care for the people around us. Like Paul, we need to be God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. We need to love God's people, and we need to rely on the word of God. These principles will keep us from erring on the side of fearing man or being motivated by man's approval in our care for others. Because if we are, we'll be angry or disappointed when our ministry doesn't change things. Or we may hesitate to give the kind of care that's needed if we think it won't be well received. These will also guard us from being harsh or impatient. See, we never want our love for a brother or sister to waver based on how they respond, whether or not they change. Our love needs to be grounded in what Christ has done for us. And then three, these will protect us from looking to unbiblical methods and solutions, especially when change is slow. And then number four, these will prevent us from making people dependent on us because we will be teaching them to depend on God and his word. So in closing, did you notice how God's word plays an essential role in all of these commands? We admonish with God's word. We encourage with God's word. We help with God's word. Does that make you think of discipline one? If we are to be properly caring for one another, that's discipline three, and if we are to be caring for one another in our homes and families in this way, that's discipline two, then we must be saturating our own hearts with God's word. Shepherding our own hearts, or like Scott Maxwell said, feeding and fencing our hearts. That's discipline one. So that we can help others shepherd their own hearts to God's word to behold his greatness and our own neediness and the power and hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not deserve anything at all from you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you for giving us everything we need to care for one another. Thank you that in your love and mercy and power and wisdom, even as you use us to step out and care for others, you are at work in our own lives to (coughs) sanctify us, to humble us, to help us see more and more how badly we need you. Oh, Lord God, make us women who love you well so we would love one another well. In Jesus' name, amen.